Hello, I'm Chris Neeland, host of a new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Each year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind iconic brands like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. You're in for a treat today because Douglas Atkin is the OG of cult branding. He literally wrote the book on the subject. Back in 2005, he published a book that's called The Culting of Brands. And he was the first person I know who really compared the beliefs and the behaviors of actual cults, you know, like the creepy kind, with enviable organizations, things like fraternities or fast-growing religions or even something like the Marine Corps, not to mention really iconic brands like Apple, Starbucks, and Nike. You know, Douglas believes at the end of the day, all of us just want to belong. And brands that enable a sense of community and give people things to interact with and not just transact with will enjoy above average benefits. Douglas's work led him to interesting marketing roles within professional service firms and within the social gathering site Meetup. But really, his career went to a whole new level of the stratosphere when he was hired in the early days of Airbnb. And he deployed his thinking about cult branding to that business and really helped contribute to their meteoric rise. As you'll soon discover, Douglas is wildly smart and wickedly charming. He's a one in a million type of marketing executive and will give you a masterclass in the art of helping people belong. Uh, I really respect that he flew to Calgary all the way from Tuscany, Italy to speak at the Gathering 2020. And I'm so glad that he did because his talk was awesome. He's one of the few speakers who has ever been invited back to speak for a second time. And so if you like what he says here, then check back later for the episode that features his other talk about living your purpose. But for now, let's just listen to Douglas share his thoughts on belonging. Okay, so I'm going to um, do a quick romp through belonging. And I'm going to posit this idea that uh, community belonging creates the best and strongest kind of community to absolutely anything whether it's a company or a brand or a religion or a political party, a club, whatever it is, it's belonging is the key. And I've come to this conclusion after spending, I guess, now about 20 years in the sort of belonging field. It all started, actually, with the research I did for this book, The Culting of Brands, where I sort of got very, very interested in how cults work and tried to think about how we could apply that knowledge to brands. I'm going to talk about that much, much more in a minute. Then I went from that, that propelled me out of the world of brands and into the world of tech, and I joined one of the early social networks called Meetup. And Meetup was all about getting people online to meet offline in face-to-face -face groups around their interests and passions. Could be learning Spanish, could be pugs, could be belly dancing. There were at least, I think, seven belly dancing meetups in Miami for some reason. 
And uh, one I went to was for vampires. And I thought it was a fan club group for vampires, but they actually thought they were vampires. <laughs> but anyway, something for everyone. Long tail of, you know, interest. So then when I was at Meetup, I became very interested in how mass movements work, some of the techniques that Obama was using in the 2008 election. Because I was thinking about whether we could use those techniques to mobilize people, to get them away from screens and back into seeing each other face to face, the best form of human contact. And then I met someone who also was at Meetup at the time called Jeremy Hymans, and we left and did a startup called Purpose. And Purpose is now like, I don't know, since several offices around the world and has about 500 people are there, I think. Purpose advises mostly nonprofits, but also some brands on how to mobilize millions to make social change. And what movements are all about. And by the way, and the reason I'm just romping quickly through this is that I've been dunked like a teabag over the past 20 years or so in many different forms of community, from cults to regular people meeting for regular reasons in, you know, all over the world, hundreds of thousands of them at Meetup, to movements. Um, where, and movements are about mobilizing people, about getting literally millions of people to take the same action at the same moment on a single leverageable point, which could be a, a politician, could be a president, could be a CEO, whatever it is, whatever needs to make the decision to make the big social change that you want. So learned a lot about movements there. And in fact, we launched we used the money we got from the consultancy to launch our own movements about things we really, really cared about. And we launched All Out, which I talked a little bit about last year, which is now the largest global gay plus movement in the world, affecting really amazing change, which is good. So, and I went from there and then in 2012 joined Airbnb when it was quite small, really. And there was only about 160 of us in HQ at this time. And just at this time was when we were getting pushback from the hotels. They sort of ignored us up until then and sort of were, were ridiculous and not to be taken seriously. But they were just getting serious. And they were using their immense lobbying power and history that they had had and huge funds that they had through the local authorities to tra basically try and kill us off. Because what was happening is that we were helped develop this new economy, this peer-to-peer -peer economy or sharing economy. And it was bumping up against old laws uh, that didn't recognize this new economic activity. And the hotel uh, lobby, to be frank, many of them, not always, but were exploiting that. We had one lobbyist at the time. He just joined at the same time as I did. We had one lawyer, so we couldn't compete. But what we did have that they didn't was people power. Not lobbying power or money power. We had people power. We had incredibly committed and devoted hosts and guests and employees. So I grabbed um, some people from the Obama campaign of 2004 and 2008 who were experts in grassroots organizing. They basically wrote the playbook on it and used them to recruit, train, form intense local communities and mobilize hosts to take political action and help change the laws in their own city. So that was one of the things we did there. So like, again, dunked in this incredibly, I, I'm passionate about grassroots organizing actually. I think it's sort of uh, the community model for the future. Then one of the other things I did there, which uh, was to help Airbnb become a purpose-driven company and community. And um, some of you who were here before, remember we talked about the, the purpose of Airbnb and how we got it, which is we want to create a world where anyone 
can belong anywhere. And that's, you know, pretty hard to do, to get a good purpose anyway for an organization. What's even harder is to live it and deliver it and operationalize it. So Airbnb does that, I'm thankful to say. So I talked a little bit about that. And, and there seemed to be a bit of interest about that. So I, since last year, for anyone who's interested, I've written a series of short articles in Medium about what I talked about on this stage a year ago. So how Airbnb found its purpose and why it's a good one. And then a, a whole series of ones about how to operationalize your purpose. It's pointless having a purpose if it sits on a PowerPoint or on a company mug. You have to live it. Otherwise, it's kind of worse than useless, actually. It makes people pissed off and bitter that it's not being done. How to live your purpose, it's hard. Don't fuck up the culture. So that's not me saying that. That was Peter Thiel as he handed $200 million check over to Brian Chesky, who's co-founder CEO, uh, at the moment that he was investing in Airbnb. And he gave that advice to protect his investment and make it grow, which is don't fuck up the culture. Not launch the best products, not you know a million other things you might expect a VC to say, but he said that, and he was right. And then here's another one, randomly, uh, use it to recruit, review, and reject everybody, even your customers. So uh, last year I put up this slide, which is to create the best form of belonging. What I've learned from this 20-year journey is that these are the key things that you need to do to create the most belonging-led commitment. And I talked about purpose last time. I'm going to talk about the rest of these, doing a quick skim and a bit of a deep dive and then a quick skim. So what I'm going to do is go back to where my sort of passion about community started, which is in the work that led to this book in 2004. It all started with uh, one day in New York. I used to work for a branding agency. <clears throat> and it started with a bunch of depressed marketers. They were in there, and it's quite a famous brand, this. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but they were basically saying, our jobs are finished, loyalty is dead, all products now are more or less the same, and you can replicate any product differences very, very quickly. So basically, my, our jobs are over, loyalty is gone, marketing is finished. So very depressed people. Then by coincidence that night, I went to a focus group I had already organized for another purpose, um, of a bunch of teenagers talking about their favorite brand of sneaker. And they were talking about it in almost religious terms, about what at the end of the day are just bits of rubber and plastic, are commodity products. I mean, there's no functional difference between one brand of sneaker or another, or maybe tiny. But you couldn't tell them that. They were absolutely committed to this brand. It was the best brand. Which made me think two things, really, which was first, those marketers were wrong. You can create commitment even to a commodity product. And then secondly, I was thinking, why and how? I mean, how do you do that? Why were these kids so committed to these bits of rubber and plastic? So I thought, you know, they're using religious terms. I'm going to look at best-in-class cult brands like Harley and Apple at the time. And then I thought, why stop there? Let's go straight to the source. Let's go to cults themselves which is like the most extreme forming of, of belonging you can um, imagine. Because I thought if we can examine that extreme and, and sort of decode how they get people to get so committed and why those people get so committed, then we can apply those lessons to less extreme forms of belonging like brands and companies. So that's what I did over the next um, few years, sort of in between my day job. I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of members of full-on cults, like Krishna and some you know, weird secretive ones in New York, and cult brands. 
And then everything in between, more or less, like the Marines, uh, Trekkies, sororities, fan clubs of, of sports teams, and interviewed these people. And what was very interesting, and I very quickly learned this, is that what I was hearing was the same. The reason people were saying they were committed to this brand, or the Marines, or Krishna, they were using almost the same vocabulary the same terms, which is good, because then I really could, that justified looking at the extreme form then to apply it to the rest. I'm going to focus first, though, on cults. I mean, if not here, where? <laughs> so, now the first thing I want to say about cults is they are normal. They are normal. There's about five to 6,000 cults operating right now in North America, uh, and they're not making headlines like the People's Temple did or Waco or whatever, just because they're just happily getting on with their job of creating belonging and belief for their devotees. So, and, and I'm going to show you how cults are normal. The academics, the kind of the specialists in this, this field, the religious, religious academics, sociologists, religion, have even stopped calling them cults. And they started calling them NRMs, New Religious Movements for two reasons. One is they want to distance them from you know, the sensational uh, news stories that basically have informed our perception of cults from the 70s and 80s and stuff, Heaven's Gate and all that. Um, so they want to distance it from that because these are real social phenomena. And secondly, because that's what they are. They are new religious movements. This is from the front page of um, the University of Virginia School of uh, divinity, something like that. Religious and human cultures are constantly being renewed and re reinvigorated. At some point, every religion was new. There are no exceptions. What they're basically saying is cults are sort of the engines of change in a culture. If we didn't have cults, cultures would atrophy and die. They are the kind of the new things that are happening. And most cults do die, actually. They're persecuted because they're often challenging the orthodoxy um, at the time. But some grow, just like Christianity did. Christianity was one of several mystery cults in the Eastern Mediterranean 2,000 years ago. Uh, it was persecuted by the, the orthodoxy at the time, but then it became the state religion of Rome in 300 AD and grew and grew and then changed the culture in its own image to this present day. The Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, started about 200 years ago, had all the characteristics of what you think of as a cult, grew, took a hold, and again is growing fast and is changing the culture to, to a degree in its own image. So they're normal, and they're not just normal, they're necessary. And the other question I had in my mind was, well, okay, who joins cults? Because the perception is this, it's the sad, the lonely, the gullible, the subjects of mind control, victims of brilliant psychopathic leaders. I mean, it has to be, surely, right? Because, you know, who would join these sort of crazy organizations? So if it was these people, then again, my whole exercise would have been wasted because it's pointless looking at, you know, psychologically flawed or socially inept people and then trying to apply those learnings to the rest of the population. The truth is that the people who join cults are very, very similar to the people in this room. And this is the way that Steve Hassan put it. He's one of the leading cult deprogrammers. He said this. Since my departure from the moon cult, I have counseled or spoken with more than a thousand former members of cults of all kinds. These people have come from every sort of background and ranged in age from 12 to 85. Although some of them clearly had severe emotional backgrounds before becoming involved, the great majority were stable, intelligent, idealistic people who tended to have good educations and come from respectable families. 
And I found this true. The people I interviewed were, you know, senior people in Citigroup, you know, in major financial institutions around the world, or, you know, these were high-functioning individuals. So, which begs the question, if cults are normal, and the people that join them are normal, why? Why do people often give up a huge amount of time, sometimes money, sometimes the respect of their peers, to join a cult? That's what the question I was asking. And what I learned very quickly is the reason why is also normal. They're the same reasons, basically, that we join anything, just maybe a little more extreme. So let me start digging into what I think is probably the most important reason. And, and I see it as sort of like the engine of belonging, if you like, the thing that powers this whole thing that we do as a species. And I've come, I'm calling it the great cult paradox. And I call it that because it's contradictory to one's expectations. So the reason people join cults is not to conform, but to become more individual. The reason people join cults is not to conform, which is the common perception, but to become more individual. Well, how is that possibly true? What I kept hearing from people, from full-on cults all the way through to the Marines and so on, is that by belonging to this organization, by joining this thing, it enabled me to become more myself. As this person said, X makes the individual more himself. It makes you more you. In other words, it doesn't change you into something else. It takes who you are and makes you more so. It's sort of like a particle accelerator for the self. I mean, I don't know what a particle accelerator really does, actually, but you know, it sound, you know zip, and, it, and uh, you become more you. And the reason, <laughs> the reason why I put X there is that, of course, there are very dangerous and destructive cults. They're in the minority, but they exist. And I started uh, interviewing people who belong to one of these. And then I thought, well, OK, I fear for my own life here. I'm going to step back a bit. And I stopped investigating that particular cult. Uh, and I could because basically the people I talked to there were saying the same things as everyone else. So it makes me more myself. How is that possible? So if we're going to talk about the self, we should probably define what the self is. And this is a very common definition amongst uh, psychologists and anthropologists. The self is a self-story. It's a story we tell ourselves, normally unconsciously or semi-consciously, all of the time, every day, as we go through life. And it's a story about who we are, what others are like, how the world works, and therefore how one does or does not belong in order to maximize self. So, for example, it could be like, I don't know, you're in uh, uh, New York or London and you go in to buy a bagel and someone doesn't hold the door open and it slams in your face. And you kind of go, why did they do that? I wouldn't have done that. What kind of people make, why, why didn't, you know. You're always, again, normally unconsciously reviewing everything that's coming in. I'm not like that. I'm like this. You know, my friends I know are like this. It's always this constant self-discussion. So I'm going to try and bring this alive a little bit by giving an example. And this is an example of many, many people I spoke to. This was a young woman who became a, a Wicca witch, but she started off growing up in a Hasidic Orthodox Jewish culture, which she loved. But as she got older, she became very, very interested in and sort of identified as someone who is sort of a powerful woman, very interested in womanhood and spirituality. Now, as she said, as it happened, that particular religion, those two things were uh, not compatible. Uh, let's hear what she said. You know, as a woman, 
all the education is geared towards being a wife and mother. And I felt that was too limiting for me. Ultimately, what happened was that I was excommunicated by a bunch of Hasidic rabbis. So she felt, you know, a little bit different and then ultimately alienated from the, from the culture in which she grew up. She didn't feel, she didn't fit, basically. So she left and it was okay. Uh, she worked in a new age bookstore in New York for a while. And by working in there, um, she came across some people who, who were Wiccans, started reading about it, started going to meetings, and then suddenly thought, aha, I found where I belong. This is a, this is a belief system and a practice that does focus on womanhood, and spirituality, the two things I've been you know, identifying myself as and craving uh, before. So she joined, and one of the things she talked about, and I kept hearing this over and over and over again from everyone, is that once she had found that, once she had found it sort of like others who were, had the similar values and had the similar outlook in life to herself, she was basically, as we see her say in a minute, in a safe space. She wasn't in a place like previously where she was criticized for the very things that defined who she was. She was celebrated for those things instead, that she was a woman and highly spiritual. I think there's an incredible strength with my own sisterhood. I've seen a lot of women tear down walls that have been in place and really get to know who they are inside. It's a safe place because they're amongst women. So it's a safe space because you're amongst people who get you. And we all do this. This has happened to all of us, I guarantee. Whether it's on a high school playground and you finally found your nerds or your jocks or whichever group you ended up joining because they felt the same way that you did. I mean, I went through it, for example, I used to work in advertising in London in the 80s, which was very sort of electric then, pretty brutally competitive, highly creative. And I joined an agency called Gold Greenlee's Trot that was like one of the five leading ones of that whole movement. And it was great and I did some good work, but there's a sort of template for the kind of person who would be successful there. And it was modeled on the leader of that agency called Dave Trot. And, and that was a sort of an East End lad. Now, I don't think you, many of you know what that is, but basically it's sort of like a Cockney, all right, mate, kind of thing, which I'm not, you know, obviously. But I saw other people who had really plummy Oxford Cambridge accents changing their accents unconsciously, simply to kind of get on. And what I realized was happening is I was spending 50% of my energy trying to conform to this template, which was exhausting. You know, I'm sure we've all been in places like this before where you, you want to fit in, but you don't. And you're spending a lot of energy sort of compensating for that. And then you, I left and I went to an advertising agency, which was way more sort of my kind of thing. And I was able to blossom. And finally, I joined Airbnb, which was my, I think, probably my last job. But the place I felt most at home ever, wherever I worked, because the founders and everyone else there had similar values. I felt like I belonged, that I'd sort of found my long lost friends. You know, we, we were entrepreneurial, we wanted to make it all up as we're going along, but it was this huge, amazing culture of warmth and support and, and, and all of that, which I talked a little bit about last year. So this woman went through this, she felt this, she was in a space, safe space, she could be herself. She ended up writing four books and becoming a senior person in Wicca. So she said this. I'm a priestess, I'm a rabbi, I'm a rabbi Wicca. So it's happened for me. So the same thing happens with cult brands. This is about um, Apple, actually. 
For many, many years, uh, less so maybe now, but for many, many years, Apple users felt that they were different from everyone else. Not just because they used a different machine, um, and one that wasn't actually <laughs> that good until the second coming of Steve Jobs. But they felt different because they would define themselves basically as sort of less conformist, maybe a little more creative, working in architecture or advertising or whatever, and maybe a little more passionate than the general population. So here's someone I talking about that. I spent 26 years not conforming. Why the hell should I start now? The Mac has played a big role in helping me not conform. And so there is this sort of, but then Steve Jobs came back. He opened the stores, he launched those multicolored computers. Suddenly the product was, was getting back to what the old ideology of Apple always was, which was more creative, less conformist, more passionate. And he started off that whole thing with the Think Different commercial. Not a single computer in it. It was simply a brilliant execution of the purpose of the organization and the community. And when people saw that, it was like a aha a sort of recognition. It was like Apple was saying, and this is what the best strong cult-like communities do, which is, says, you're different. We're different in exactly the same way. Come in and join us and feel at home. It's basically what they're doing. This is why, by the way, having a purpose that's different and declaring it and communicating is so important, because you need to be saying that to everyone. So this is the way they were thinking after that. In a literal sense, coming. it is based around a machine, but actually it's all about a certain way of thinking. Like, there's nothing wrong with you, that you're not considered an asshole, that people don't say, you're doing this and we're doing that. It's okay to march to the beat of a different drummer. Same thing, self-actualization. Well, no, I was actually creative to begin with, but in some ways they made me more creative. So this was the commercial that sort of made people go, aha, that's me. It was almost like a sort of siren call to these, to these people. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. So who cares, basically? Yeah, why, why would you be interested? Because it creates incredibly powerful commitment. And then often, as a result of that commitment, testimony, word of mouth. Because people want to say, hey, you're like me, I think you'll love this. Come in, you know, try this, do this. This is a guy, I'm gonna play a guy here. Student in New Jersey at Rutgers, I think. And, um, you know, he could barely afford his lunch, but he said he wanted to upgrade Apple whenever he could because it was like supporting Apple, supporting the mothership. This is him. I think a lot of Mac users feel like almost personally responsible for the well-being of the mother company. I find with Apple, I see I'm much more prone to buy directly from Apple rather than through a reseller. Just because you want, you want Apple to get everything. You want them to get your money. It's almost like a charity case. It's like, take my money. <laughs> Now, he's not saying that because he's getting points. It's not some part of some loyalty scheme or air miles, which are fine, 
No, those things are good, but I think, frankly, at the end of the day, they are a lesser form of commitment. They are much more transactional. I'm sure you know, as I do, many people who say, for example, I hate American, but I got all these miles, that's why I fly them. Right? So, well, he's saying this because there is a deep, deep, deep identification and a feeling of alliance with the brand and what it stands for and with other people who use the brand. I'm going to talk about two other things. These are all the things that are in the book about what you need to create a, a cult brand or any form of strong belonging organization. If you want to start your own cult, you can. I'm going to talk about difference and love very quickly. I wanted to talk about this here because as people who are sort of interested in brands, you need difference. I mean, it should be clear now, basically, because what you're saying to people is, as I said before, we're different, you're different in the same way. You should join and meet the others and feel like you're at home, identify with them. So I'm going to talk about how you create this sense of difference. So the first one, I'm going to use Harley as an example. So when I was interviewing uh, Harley riders, this is uh, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years ago, at the table, there would be like a cop, a dentist, someone on the lam, a management consultant, a dentist. Okay, so the complete social spectrum. But what they all said was, that stuff is not me. I mean, I've got a beautiful house, I've got a lovely family, I've got a, a very successful career and I love them all. But actually, if I'm honest, they're not me. I only feel that I am myself when I'm amongst my brothers and sisters, shooting the breeze beside our Harleys outside of a bar or going on a ride. Because what they said their true self is that they'd, you know, like all of us do, basically, is we all are born different, we, ha we all feel different, and then we start look, sort of shaving and knocking off all the little rough edges of difference simply to get on in life, simply to have a career, simply to get that job and keep that job, and simply to you know, get on with uh, your relations, whatever it is. You start shaving off those little edges of difference, which leaves you craving something. And what these guys craved was other people who felt as sort of freedom lovers, freedom from all of that. And this guy described all of that as rigmarole. Everyday things. You brush your teeth, you put on your underwear, you go outside, you empty the mailbox, you look through the bills, you go to work, get off at a certain time, you come home, she's got dinner on the table, it's a beautiful night, maybe I'll watch Married with Children, I don't know. That's rigmarole. It's definitely not me. And that was, that was true of everyone, as I said. Harley knows this. Harley knows this. That's why in their worldwide brand book, it starts with Harley Truth number one. Harley is not for everyone. I mean, they have 40% market share. But what they are basically saying, and they're declaring it, luckily the culture is helping them do it with movies like On the Waterfront and The Hells Angels at the time and um, all of that, that they're the rebels. They're the ones fighting against, you know, sort of settling and conformity. They're the ones who are truly standing up for the freedom, metaphorically and of the open road. So it's really important to declare, once you've figured out your purpose, how, and it's very, very different from everything else, you need to stand up loud and declare it so that people who will recognize it and love it come. And one of the ways you can do that, shouting from the, from the rooftops, is do what a lot of religions and others do, which is demarcate yourself from everyone else by all kinds of things by the rituals that you do, by what you wear. Like you think of Krishna, you see the robes, for example. It could be anything, it could be logos. In Harley's case, the sound of the bike is a really, really, I'm sure they can make bikes that are quieter, 
but they don't, because it's a rebellious sound. It's a way, it's a way of defining their difference. So they, I'm sorry for the language, but this is, this is what they said. So these two guys are respectable human beings doing very decent jobs, just so you know. What we wear is essentially a fuck off to the outside world. It says, stay the fuck away from me. It does keep people away. I have this great t-shirt that says, fuck off, I have enough friends. <laughs> Everyone knows that sound. You can hear it from three blocks away. People who can't see the difference between bikes can tell which one is a Harley just from the sound. You can ride a Harley quietly or you can ride one loud. I was riding through town last Sunday morning and decided to make some noise and wake up some people. It was great. It was a great fuck you. I hate those people, but then I'm not a Harley rider. So now the fourth way of creating a sense of difference is incredibly powerful controversial and sometimes dangerous. And particularly now, I think, actually, as you'll see. So for thousands and thousands of years, religious and political leaders have used demonization to create solidarity. When you demonize the other, you create a sense of solidarity amongst your community because they're a threat. And so you all rally together, forget your little differences and march forward. So it's very, very important to kind of like say us and them. And this is a quote, this is a, a woman who was in, uh, high up in the Krishna movement who said this. There was a real strong thing about us and them that basically we're good and they're bad. We would talk about how bad the outside world is and how bad the people are and how nobody out there believed in God, how they're all meat eaters, how they're all going to hell. Before you met your guru, you were a dog, like literally. That's what they would say. So the two um, entrepreneurs who are really, really good at this were Steve Jobs and um, Branson of Virgin. I mean, from the get-go, basically, Steve Jobs understood the power of all the things I've been talking about, you know, declaring your difference and uh, having a purpose and bringing the people in. But he was a master at it, and it kind of started in 1984. This is a recording of him talking at a software development conference and a retailer conference, okay? So bear, remember that, because when you hear this, uh, it sounds like a sort of revival religious meeting. It is now 1984. It appears IBM wants it all. Apple is perceived to be the only hope to offer IBM a run for its money. Dealers, initially welcoming IBM with open arms, now fear an IBM-dominated and controlled future. They are increasingly and desperately turning back to Apple as the only force that can ensure their future freedom. IBM wants it all and is aiming its guns on its last obstacle to industry control, Apple. Will Big Blue dominate the entire computer industry? The entire information age? Was George Orwell developers. right necessarily about 1984? So there's two big things that demonization does, as I said. The first one was creating solidarity, as he was saying in that speech. But the second thing is, when you define the other as the opposite of yourself, you're also defining yourself. So both he and Branson would define, in that case, IBM, but you know, it carried on to the PC. Remember, I'm a PC, I'm a Mac commercials. He'd been doing it for decades. When you define the other as 
in this case of corporate, overbearing, monolithic bullying, you're actually defining yourself as sort of creative, piratical, smart for the people. And both Branson had no way BAAA, talking about a merger at the time, painted on his planes. So, so that's difference, very, very important. And that last one is an optional tool you can use. It's incredibly potent, but you need to use it with care. Some would argue, and I would agree, that there's a little bit too much us and them in our Western culture at the moment. So treat with care. The other thing I quickly want to talk about is love. Love is unbelievably important in creating cult-like attraction, as you can imagine, because this is about a sense of community and belonging. I was fortunate enough to help launch JetBlue 20 years ago. When they came in, all they had was a business plan and $50 million and a terrible name that David Nealman wanted to call the airline because it was based in New York, which was Taxi. And at the time, maybe still, New York taxis don't know where they're going. They're smelly, dirty, cramped, and crash a lot. So not a good name for an airline. Anyway, we ended up working with the name. We designed the planes and everything. And we, and we came up with their purpose at the time, which you'll still hear them using today, thankfully, which is they were about putting humanity back into air travel. And so the reason they didn't have food, for example, was not because they wanted to save money, but they'd be going through the aisle and going chicken or beef, chicken or beef, got in the way of the interaction of the staff. And the staff, originally, they didn't recruit anyone who'd worked in an American airline before, because they were toxic. The airlines were toxic, apart from the pilots, obviously. We made a little card for them that said, this looks like you're doing a really good job. Would you like to turn that into a passion and a career? So people who already worked at JetBlue could have these cards and hand them out to people, like at a Starbucks or somewhere, to recruit them if they saw them as really good interaction skills, humanity, and all the rest of it. And this is Dave Barger. And as he said, everyone thinks JetBlue was, was successful because of the stuff. It wasn't. It's because of the staff. And they hired the right staff and made them interact and live the purpose, which was delivering humanity. So I'm going to talk just like a few minutes more. And then and if anyone's interested in the rest, please come to the Inner Sanctum tomorrow. So I mentioned this last year. Now, and it's really, I really want to tell you about this because it's super important. It's a little bit saucy. But once you hear it, you'll never forget it or the lesson, OK? Which is you need to rub your members together until they get sticky. Okay, rub your members together till they get sticky. This is something that the boys, that the founders of Airbnb really got. They would organize these every year. It costs millions of dollars to fly in thousands of employees around the world to San Francisco for a week. We called it one Airbnb. And the only goal for that week is a week of people not doing their jobs. It was a week of people rubbing together and, uh, and getting sticky, of socializing. And that was the only goal, was socialization. Yes, we made some announcements. But as uh, Nate said here, when someone asked him, why do you spend all this money doing this? He said, well, we're here to get sticky. Because that creates an incredibly powerful sense of belonging to Airbnb, a really powerful culture and cohesion. And when I joined Meetup, I wanted to find out at what point did people get committed and passionate about their groups they joined for, you know, beagles or whatever? And it was when they had been to four meetup events or more. Four or more was the critical point. And that's because four visits was enough time for people to make friends, see people they like, feel a point of connection and a people belonging. Like, we asked them why. You know, why were you committed after four plus events? I've made new friends. I feel at home. I feel like I'm among peers. Not the ostensible purpose of that meetup, which could be a mum's group. 
I mean, yes, of course, but they've gone beyond that now. You need enough time, you need to rub your members together, interaction, so that bonds are created. And once bonds are created, there's a sense of belonging and mutual support. And that delivers this amazing, amazing, powerful emotional commitment to whatever it is you're leading, whether it's a company, a brand, or a cult. Okay. I've got no time to do this. You may ask the question, well, okay, how do I rub my members together to get them sticky? The answer is you need to ramp people up the commitment curve. But I've kept you here too long. Um, it's a really neat, very simple tool. If you're interested, please come to the, to the thing, um, the sanctum thing. And I'll just say thank you very much. Sorry I was over time and, and good luck. <laughs>
Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.